Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In the 18th week of our study on the life of the Apostle Paul, we will hear Paul's defense before Governor Felix and learn why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to our faith. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 24 and join us as we become imitators of Paul as he imitated Jesus Christ. This week, as we look at our passage for today from Acts chapter 24, if you have your Bibles or your smartphones or your tablets, open up to Acts chapter 24. We will be looking at Paul giving his defense before Governor Felix. And this is, as I said, the final stage of Paul's life journey and his missionary or mission journey, as well as the final phase of our time together. And as we look at the book of Acts, this is actually the final leg of the whole journey of Luke's great work, or or Luke's great book in the book of Acts. And we see in Acts 1.8 that we read, But you, Jesus says to his disciples, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus predicted, and prophetically told his disciples that they would be his witnesses and those that they would disciple in his name would be his witnesses, continuing to spread this gospel, continuing to see God grow the church throughout, starting in Jerusalem, then moving out to all Judea and Samaria, and then eventually to the end of the earth. And at the time when Luke wrote this, the end of the earth of the known world was the Roman Empire, And the heart of that end of the earth was the city of Rome itself. We also read in Acts 20, 22 and 23, that uh, the Lord himself, or or Paul has been given this message from the Lord himself, as he says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, which is where we were last week, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And that is indeed what happened. As we look at our passage from last week, we saw that Paul was indeed arrested. And as we will find out, that was all part of God's necessary plan to move him to where he wanted him to be, ultimately in the city of Rome. So uh, just to kind of orient us to, to where we are, Paul, as we mentioned, was arrested. Um, he, uh, he was brought in, as you know, because the Jews were falsely accusing him of bringing a Gentile into the court of the Jews. Um, Paul had a lot of opponents, and these opponents made sure that there was a lot of civil unrest and that Paul was the focus of that from the standpoint of the Roman government. So he was indeed arrested. Um, the next day, they, uh, the Roman authorities give Paul the opportunity to speak before a group of religious leaders known as um, the Sanhedrin. And so he preaches to Jews and the Jews, well, I should go back. The day he is arrested, he asks the, the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias, can I speak to the people? And he speaks to the people, and he speaks to them in their language that they understand of Aramaic, and they're listening. They're actually listening to Paul share his testimony and share the gospel. But when he gets to the point about saying that he was uh, called by God to go to the Gentiles, 
Immediately, all of their listening goes out the door, and they begin to riot and revolt again and say, this man uh, is blaspheming. And so the Roman commander brings him back into the barracks, and that's the fortress of Antonia, which we, uh, we looked at last week. It's kind of on this northern side of the whole temple complex. Again, the place where Peter was probably imprisoned and where Jesus was probably before Pilate. Um, and so he uh, are taken before he went to Pilate. So Paul is there, and uh, the next day, they're about to flog him in this, in this uh, fortress. And Paul looks up and says, I am a Roman citizen, by the way. And the man who's about to flog him immediately stops and says, oh, what? Oh, I'm so sorry, because Roman citizens were, first of all, not often flogged. And uh, the main reason why they would be flogged is first that they had been through a proper trial. And to fail to give a Roman citizen a proper trial to then lead to a flogging, which oftentimes they were actually exempt from flogging anyway, was a big governmental societal no-no. And not only was Paul a Roman citizen, but he was born a Roman citizen, unlike the, the military leader who had to pay for his Roman citizenship. So uh, they realized they had made an egregious error against Paul and immediately uh, stopped. They did not flog him. And they gave him an opportunity to continue to have an audience. So the next day, he goes before the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, which were sort of the, the religious uh, supreme court of the day, and it included both Pharisees, of whom Paul was one, and the Sadducees. Now, the main difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these two competing um, denominations, you could say, of the Jewish faith, is that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, and that's going to become an important key component to all of this, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And as someone has once told me, that is why they are so sad, you see, because they do not believe in the resurrection. That's how you can remember that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So Paul, uh, knowing this, ends up talking about the resurrection of the dead and points out this distinction between these two competing religious groups within Judaism. And, and all of a sudden, the Pharisees start to say, well, I think this guy's okay. And the Sadducees say, no, he's a heretic. And they start fighting amongst themselves. So Paul is brought back into the fortress for his own safety. And um, the Jewish leaders then make a pact. They say, we will not eat or drink until this man is dead. And so they begin coming up with a secret plan to have Paul assassinated. Interestingly, Paul's nephew somehow catches wind. I see God's hand of super, uh, you know, supernatural protection going on here. Paul's nephew catches wind of the plan. He tells Paul while he's being held. Paul tells the, uh, the Roman tribune this, and he says, well, here's what we're going to do. We are going to make a plan to transport you under armored guard from Jerusalem to Caesarea, which is to the northwest. Believe it or not, I saved this. We have a map. Um, before, I, before I get to the map, um, yeah, we're, before I get to the map, Scripture before maps, right? Um, Acts 23.11, we have another reminder of, of how Paul was so confident in what God was leading him to do and where he was to go. As, uh, he's, uh, as he's being held uh, the night, um, one of the nights where he's being held in this barracks, uh, the following night the Lord stood by him. The Lord Jesus, somehow um, physically present, standing by Paul, amazing, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, 
so you must testify also in Rome. So Paul knew this. Um, This was communicated to him by Jesus Christ himself. So God supernaturally protecting him from being assassinated, transports him. Here's our map. It's a little bit hard to see, but you have Jerusalem is kind of uh, that small, that circle towards the bottom. Caesarea to the northwest, closer on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And he would be transported under armored guards secretly overnight to Caesarea. The only illustration I can think of is in 1984 when Robert Ursay decided that the Baltimore Colts were moving to Indianapolis. And they did it under the cover of night and nobody knew. And then the next morning they said, where did this football franchise go? They went to Indianapolis. So the religious leaders all of a sudden wake up in Jerusalem. Where did Paul go? They get word later, oh, he's in Caesarea. So Paul is now safely in Caesarea where he would be for two years, which is fascinating that he would spend that much time there, sort of under this uh, almost like arrest. And he would appear before the uh, uh, governor of Judea, Marcus Antonius Felix. And we'll read a quotation about him in uh, just a moment. He's the Roman procurator over the region of Judah from AD 52 to 60. Uh, And you could liken him to a governor of sorts, sort of the Roman uh, political ruler over the region of Judea. So uh, let's walk through what happens when Paul meets this man, Felix, in Acts chapter 24. And we really have two sections that we look at. And the first section is the case, I put that in quotations, the case against Paul. We'll pick up in verse 1. Now, and I'll make some observations along the way. After five days, so he's been in Caesarea. After five days, the high priest Ananias, that is the Jewish high priest, came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And in just a moment, we'll hear what Tertullus has to say. So they waste no time. They get there as quickly as they can. They get their best legal team assembled so that they can go up to Caesarea or from Jerusalem, technically down. We talked about that. When you leave Jerusalem, you go down. When you go, when you approach, you go up. So they're going down, I guess, to Caesarea. And they get their best uh, religious legal team together within five days. They have the high priest. So he's the big um, public figure. Like He's the the figurehead of why we're here. Uh, Who, by the way... uh, He was a Sadducee, so just keep that in mind. Ananias was. And then they have Tertullus, who uh, they mention here, as Luke writes, he was a spokesman. The Greek word is rhetoros, where we get our English word rhetoric. So this was a trained legal uh, forensic debater who was coming in to declare why Paul had violated the law. And, uh, and they, they bring it in the, the big guns, guys. They're trying to do all that they can to make sure, since their attempt to assassinate him didn't work, they're trying to bring in now to do it somewhat civilly so that Paul can eventually be punished and, they hope, put to death. So they bring their case against Paul in verse 2. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus, this great rhetor- rhetorician, began to accuse Paul, saying, now, now just hear what he says first. This was customary of the time. Since through you, great Felix, we enjoy much peace. 
And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. Okay, so he is kissing up big time to this political ruler. And I'm not sure I know we have some uh, retired judges here. Maybe that happened on the the stand. I don't know. but maybe not. Maybe you don't stand for that kind of stuff. But, um, but here's what's ironic about this. If you read about this person, Felix, from history, uh, he was anything but what Tertullus has just proclaimed. Here is a quotation um, from the Net Study Bible. References to peaceful rule reforms and the governor's foresight in the opening address by Tertullus represent an attempt to praise the governor and thus make him favorable to the case. Actual descriptions of his rule portray him as inept. His administration was notorious for its corruption, cynicism, and cruelty. According to the historian Tacitus, Felix reveled in cruelty and lust and wielded the power of a king with the mind of a slave. Um, So needless to say, Tertullus is just fluffing up a man who is uh, not a good man. But this was customary of the day. So now... He continues in verse 4. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness, that just makes me laugh, to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague. And by the way, they're insulting and bringing charges against Paul personally, religiously, civilly here. We have found this man a plague or a troublemaker, one translation says, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Really? A little exaggeration here, Turtleus, I think so. And is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So here they're even painting uh, the Christian faith. By the way, you know, we follow Jesus of Nazareth. And so one of the names that had been given to this Christian faith was the sect of the Nazarenes. They make them sound like these zealots who are going around and causing political revolt. Uh... Verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. As if to say, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to help you out here, Felix. We're doing a good thing. We seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. So this is, uh, this is interesting. If Paul had really been guilty of what Tertullus was claiming, what the Jews, the religious leaders were claiming, that he had been doing, then Governor Felix would have no choice but to act and condemn him, because revolting against the empire of Rome was a capital offense. So uh, these false charges, as we know, uh, were brought even back in Jerusalem of Paul bringing a Gentile into the court of the Jews. But they really felt like they had their smoking gun here. Evidence against Paul laid out But come to find out, we will see, their smoking gun, guys, was full of blanks because they ultimately had no claim against Paul. They were trying to prove that he was an enemy of the state and a menace to society. Ultimately, Felix would have to take political action if this was true. Uh, We find out in verse 9, the Jews joined in the charge. They were probably cheering on what Tertullus was saying, affirming that all of these things were so. Well... What happens next? As we are reminded of this important 
verse that Jesus Christ had said to Paul. Because you can imagine, what is Paul thinking in this moment? Okay, I'm hearing the crowds. It's this overwhelming energy, this overwhelming attempt to persuade. And everyone is saying that I'm guilty of these things. But I imagine the words of Acts 23.11 where we're sitting and, and being graciously reminded of Paul by the Holy Spirit. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul being reminded of the path and the plan that Jesus Christ had for him. The importance of not doubting in the dark what God has revealed in the light. So then the question is, Paul's defense, how would he respond in light of this emotional, overwhelming case being brought against him? Well, we find as we read verses 10 through 21 how Paul would respond. And I feel as if um, we, we could talk a lot about how do you respond when enemies heap false accusations on you. But I feel as if the Holy Spirit truly gave Paul the words in this moment and the response for him to say with authenticity what he shares in verse 10 and following. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation. By the way, Paul was trying at least to say the facts. He wasn't trying to fluff them up. He just said basically, yeah, you've been judge over this nation. I'm not going to say anything else about that because I probably can't say very much good about you. But you have been judge over this nation of Judea. I cheerfully make my defense. Cheerfully. Why was Paul cheerful? I believe it's because he knew he had yet another opportunity to present Jesus Christ to another uh, ruler, another political leader, another group of people, some of the same people who had heard him before. But he cheerfully makes his defense. Uh, you can verify, verse 11 reads, that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. What he's saying here is, Felix, do you really think that I could have started a revolt in 12 days? leading all of these people against the nation of Rome in 12 days? No, no, no. These revolts take time. It takes grassroots effort. It takes years. It takes persuasion. I went up, and it's been 12 days, Governor Felix. Verse 12, And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect. So there Paul is saying, they call it a sect, but I'm telling you, it is the way. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law written in the prophets. Here Paul's going back to the Old Testament again, showing how it points to Jesus. Having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I, all, I always take pains to have a clear conscience both toward uh, both God and man. Before the Lord and before his fellow human beings and his fellow Jews, Paul has a clear conscience because he knows he is doing what he has been called to do and what he believes is right, which of course is the truth. 
Now, after several, several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. This is the financial gift that he brought from uh, the Gentile churches to bless the church in Jerusalem, which he brought, and that's why he came to Jerusalem. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple. Remember, he was taking part in a purification ritual to prove to both uh, the Jews as well as the religious leaders that he was a man of integrity. Uh, I was purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, we remember them from last week, they ought to be here before you, by the way, and make an accusation should they have anything against me. In other words, uh, let them come. If they really have something against me, they should be the ones here bringing this case. Uh, Or else, verse 20 reads, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. And that's when he stood before the Sanhedrin and said, there is a resurrection of the dead causing the Pharisees to, to get in a fight with the Sadducees. Paul's, getting, Paul's saying, I guess that's why I'm on trial here today, because of the resurrection of the dead. Richard Longenecker commenting in uh, the Expositor's Bible commentary on the fact that the original uh, bringers of the case were not actually there to bring the case against Paul. Those uh, Jews from Asia writes, Roman law imposed heavy penalties upon accusers who abandoned their charges, uh, a principle called destitutio. And the disappearance of accusers often meant the withdrawal of a charge. Their absence, therefore, suggests that they had nothing against him that would stand up in a Roman court of law. So these Jews from Asia who brought the original charges, they weren't there. So by default, there really should be no charges at all. So Paul's rational conclusion is that he's on trial now because of um, what he had said in causing the Sanhedrin to get in a fight amongst itself. And so... Um, His point was, Felix, I know that you don't mess with matters of religious debate and theological issues between the Jews. Paul's basically saying, that's why I'm here, because I present a belief in the resurrection of the dead. So what happens over the next two years, and this gets us to uh, Paul's movement eventually to Rome, is he stays in Caesarea for two years. And this were were roughly the years of A.D. 57 to 59. And um, a man named Festus moves into the position of governor after Felix. Once uh, Once Festus comes in after Felix, the religious leaders see this again as their opportunity to get a foot in the door, and uh, they become like those political lobbyists when a new uh, politician is in office. Say, hey, hey, have you heard about this? Let me, what would you think about this? And so they become uh, religious lobbyists, and they go to Festus, and they try to convince him and persuade him that this man Paul, who's been here for two years in prison, essentially, um, he is a danger and an enemy of the state. So they hope that Festus will actually transport Paul back to Jerusalem, where they hope on the way to kill him there. And um, they hope to have a trial, they say, in Jerusalem. Um, Well, interestingly, Paul is brought before Festus at Caesarea, and he makes a legal appeal, a legal appeal that would be instrumental in the journey that he would take to Rome. He essentially says, 
uh, listen, if this is a Roman trial for something I have done, I appeal to the big dog in the big house, Caesar himself. I want this trial to be had under his jurisdiction. So essentially, Paul is saying, I don't want these local uh, small courts here. I want to appeal to the Supreme Court of the day, the Roman Supreme Court, the Roman emperor himself. In chapter 25, he says, I appeal to Caesar because Paul sees that this was no trial. It was a mockery trial, not a mock trial, but a mockery trial that was going to go nowhere. And eventually this was pivotal because it would lead to Paul's ultimate transportation to the city of Rome and the fulfillment of the words that Jesus had said. Interestingly, before, um, before he leaves Caesarea, Paul, uh, there's a, a visit from the king Herod Agrippa II and his wife Bernice, sort of the, uh, the puppet king over um, Judea. He swings through town. Paul gets an opportunity to share his testimony before Agrippa. He gets an opportunity to defend the gospel. And I'm reminded of words from the very beginning of Paul's uh, calling, as the Lord says to Ananias in Damascus, before he goes to find Paul after his conversion and when he was blind. We read, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And so we see these words prophetically being fulfilled even here in Caesarea as Paul was proclaiming the name of Jesus before kings, Gentiles, and the children of Israel. And he would eventually do that ultimately as he moved to Rome. So um, what could we say? What can we say about this passage as we think about applying it in our final time here this morning, I, we could talk about what it means to have a clean conscience before God and man. We could talk about what it means when enemies accuse you of something false and how you simply need to point everyone back to the truth. We could talk about how to respectfully engage with opponents when they disrespectfully smear mud on your name. But here's where the Lord led me. As I read Paul's words about why he was on trial this particular day, he was on trial in reference to the resurrection of the dead. And I was reminded of just how essential that is to our faith. And so the application this morning, guys, is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the foundation of our faith and the reason for our hope. And we have several passages in the Bible Numerous passages, too many to talk about today, but some that touch upon even what Paul had mentioned because he says in our passage today that you know, some believe in the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. <clears throat> and that is that the Jews believed in the resurrection of the dead. In Daniel 2, or Daniel 12, verse 2, we read, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The Jews believed in the resurrection of the dead. Most of them, of course. The Sadducees did not. Uh, but then, as we see, our Christian faith, which grew from the Jewish faith, as the, in the faith in the true Messiah, Yeshua, Mashiach, Jesus Christ, we see that Jesus himself taught about the resurrection of the dead. 
In John 5, 28 and 29, very similar to Daniel 12, 2. Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear uh, His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Clearly, this resurrection of everybody, those who, as we will see, have trusted in Christ to everlasting life and those who have rejected Him to everlasting condemnation. Jesus taught about the resurrection of the dead because Jesus was and is the resurrection. I say is because, yes, when He walked here on earth in history, He was the resurrection back then, but He is alive. He still is the resurrection. As Jesus says, um, before Martha and Mary, before He raises Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It's an important question for us to ask. Do we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do we understand just how foundational this teaching is to our faith and our hope? And the reason why it is foundational, guys, is because Jesus' resurrection is the basis for our hope. I'm going to take us and just read some verses from the great chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. If you're looking for a great chapter, just it explains this wonderful teaching and truth that we have and hope, you go to 1 Corinthians 15. I would love to say it'll answer all of your questions about the resurrection, but it will raise a hundred more. But it's still, when you read it, you go, this is why we are to have hope. This is why Paul had hope and why he was on trial. We read several segments here from 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. In other words, if Christ has not been raised, let's just go home. Because there's no reason for us to even gather here and learn and grow together. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, if there's been no resurrection, we are still in our sins and and that guilt of our sin is still held against us. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Paul writes, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep i.e. those who have died, who have placed their faith and hope in Him, they too, and we too one day, will be raised from the dead. And he goes on to explain, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Referring to those who are alive when Christ returns. But those who have died will be raised and be given a new glorified body. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. These are words from Hosea chapter 13. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Amen. If you go to Bruton Parish Church, downtown Colonial Williamsburg, and you enter the cemetery, you walk in that gate and you turn to your left, you're met almost immediately by a rather large tombstone that's flat and on the ground. And these words, guys, are inscribed 
on that tombstone of that individual's grave because their hope, and our hope, I pray, is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And here's why the resurrection is so important. When God created mankind in the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning of this beautiful creation we see, mankind was created not to die. In fact, God gave man and woman a mandate. And he said, you are to uh, subdue the earth and rule over the earth. That means that mankind was created to uh, rule and reign above this ground. But in Genesis 3, when sin entered the picture, and death as a result of sin means that mankind is now buried under the earth rather than ruling over the earth that mankind was created to do. So as one professor once said, the most perverse thing that a person can do is die because that is completely against God's original creation. And so now we see Jesus flipping that completely where those who are dead under will once again be raised in Christ to rule over the earth with Christ as he has originally created us to do, as our bodies are transformed. We do well to talk about the death of Jesus. Absolutely. The crucifixion of Jesus on the cross, the atoning death of Jesus and his sacrifice, but never to the exclusion of the rest of the story of the resurrection of Jesus three days later. And that is because, as a former professor, Glenn Kreider has aptly put it, a dead Savior is no Savior at all. Amen? If there is no resurrection, we are to be pitied. Our faith is in vain. And that is because Jesus' resurrection completes the story and secures our salvation. As we read in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, it will be counted as righteousness to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered over for our trespass, there's Good Friday, crucifixion, and raised for our justification. There's Easter Sunday, the resurrection. You see, you can't have one without the other. And now for the rest of the story, Jesus is alive. And there's power that comes through the resurrection because He empowers us not just to know that one day we'll have glorious life in the future, but we can live as resurrected Christians through the down payment of the Holy Spirit today and live the victorious resurrection life today that He calls us to live as we anticipate the full glory of the resurrection life in the future. Amen? Maybe a way to understand this doctrine of the resurrection in its full sequence is this. And I have to boil these things down in simple terms. I say for my kids, but it's mostly for me. He lived for you. He died for you. He lives, present tense, again, that you might too. That is our hope of the resurrection. And that is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the foundation of our faith and the reason for our hope. And Maybe like Paul, we can consider ourselves on trial for the resurrection of the dead. Maybe as we are sitting on the witness stand of life and the world and those who are apart from Christ see us, 
they can say something's different about that individual, about their family, about the way they gather with those, the sect of the Nazarenes, those Christians. Maybe we too can be considered to have our lives on trial for the resurrection as we live transformed lives to the living God who has resurrected his son Jesus and brought us from death to life in his name. And maybe the watching world will see our transformation and wonder how they can experience that transformation as well. Thank you for joining us for the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast. I hope you'll join us next week as we continue learning lessons from the life of the Apostle Paul. For more information on the Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash men's breakfast. Have a great week and God bless.